We're going to be starting a new chapter tonight, uh, but we'll still be considering an event in the life of the judge Jephthah. It's hard to consider things getting worse than they were last time, but that's in fact what happens with this judge tonight. If you remember last time, uh, Jephthah is the the god, or excuse me, is the man that. Oh wow! Yeah, excuse me, excuse me, Jephthah. Jephthah is the man that God chose to be the judge, the one that would be used to deliver Israel in this period of Israel's history. If you remember some things about him, he was cast out from his family. His family put him out of their their group, their land, and they, he connected with some people that were called worthless fellows. But then in a time of intense persecution and tragedy in Israel, they remembered Jephthah and they sought him out and they wanted him to be their leader. It's very similar to how Israel was treating Yahweh even. They ignored their covenant God, their covenant making and keeping God. They violated the terms of the covenant that they were in with him. And then they did it in a remarkable way even. And the picture that we read about them is it was, it was like almost, it was like a complete rebellion, like, Almost in any way that you could think of Israel rebelling against God, they were doing that. Complete abandoning of Yahweh, that is, until they needed him. And so God raises up a man that, in the calling of that man to be the judge, will once again point out how Israel has been treating Yahweh himself. And God, you know, isn't some genie. He's not a, a being that exists so that we can call upon him when we want it. We've learned that lesson already in this book, especially in this session with Jephthah. God is the judge of the world. He's accomplishing his will in it. He's accomplishing his purposes in it. And he's about the business of redeeming the elect and bringing glory to his name in all things. Nor also is God like the false gods of the surrounding nations. And that's another lesson that we've learned in this account with Jephthah. Yahweh is not to be interacted with in the same way that other people worship their gods, those false gods, those so-called gods that we know are false. God has given us his word, has revealed to us how he desires to be worshipped. Now Jephthah was a man skilled in war apparently. He knew the history of Israel quite well and the people wanted him back now to be their judge when they saw their need of him. But he didn't know how to worship the Lord. He treated Yahweh as the, the same way that the surrounding nations would also treat their so-called gods. Uh, and he ends up making this foolish and this tragic vow. The Spirit had come upon him. God was going to give deliverance to Israel through Jephthah. And just like the rest of Israel had been kind of custom, become, became so accustomed to and involved with the nations around them, these, these pagan people, uh, they would properly even be called heathens, that before he went out to war, he makes this vow, or he makes an unnecessary vow to the Lord. It, not just unnecessary, not, not only did he not have to make a vow, but it was foolish and tragic and certainly evil. He promised a human sacrifice to God if God would give him victory. That's the same type of thing that the surrounding areas around Israel, these pagan nations, that they would do with their so-called gods. But our God isn't like the pagan God. Those demons are sometimes just even the figmentations of mankind's fallen and sinful desires. The true God, Yahweh, is not like them. He doesn't need a bribe. He can't be bought. We can't force his hand in any manner. 
In fact, the, the acts of worship that we offer God are our response to who he is and what he's already done for us, namely the salvation that he's purchased us with, how, is, how it is that he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. So we don't worship God to get something from him, but make no mistake, we do get something from God as we worship. He grows our faith through it. He, he, he supplies grace. He sanctifies us. But we don't worship him to get those things. We worship him because he is worthy of worship. It's not to make him owe us. He simply just, in his kindness and his mercy, blesses us in that process. But Jephthah doesn't know that, or he forgets it, I guess. And it's not just any person that comes out of his house to meet him. That was the vow, that if you give me victory in this battle, then whatever comes out of my house, I will give to you as a burnt offering. So the person that comes out of his house was his only child, a daughter, an unmarried woman without children. And Jephthah goes through with it. He he kills her. He supposedly gives her to the Lord as a burnt offering. This is the compromise that Israel has made in the world. They aren't looking like the lights of the nations that they agreed to be. They are simply looking like the nations around them. And granted, many of the people in the nation of Israel, those who were in that, in what the scriptures call the old covenant, they didn't have salvation. They weren't born again. They they weren't united to Christ. So it's no surprise, really, that they assimilated to the world quite often, that they looked like the world quite often. They looked like the Canaanites. But we also need to think about ourselves in light of that as well. You know, if you're if you are united to Christ, if you're born again, if you're saved, in other words, we also are supposed to be the light of the world. A light that is to show the glory and grace of Christ to the lost. But so many in the church today seem to be just like the world. They seem to agree with the world and disagree with God. So even though we're not in the same covenant that the nation of Israel was in with God, we also need to be on guard against conforming to the world because that means something about a profession if we don't and, and we don't repent from it. So we, I think of uh, Romans 12.2. I think most of you guys know Romans 12.2. Uh, maybe the older uh, kids at least. So the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's Paul's advice. Now we, we may be inclined, um, so we, we're not to be conformed to the world, but Israel here has been conformed to the world, most evidently in Jephthah's choices and even the stuff we read before that as well too. So we may be inclined to think that it can't get worse for Israel at this point. I mean, the, the, the person that God raised up to be a judge is endorsing human sacrifice to God, and he ends up going through with it, even though it was his daughter. It's hard to imagine it getting worse than that. Their sin, their wickedness, their rebellion is obvious, but certainly it certainly doesn't get any better for Israel here in our text. He's going to close up the section with Jephthah, so let's read up on the passage, and then we'll pray after it. And we'll get to um, considering what it says. So the word of the Lord, this is chapter 12. I said we're starting a new chapter tonight. So the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1 in chapter 12. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonite and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. 
And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are the fugitives of Ephraim, you, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give to us understanding that we might realize how much it is that we need you. We pray that you would help us to make sense of these tragedies that we're reading and that through them all you would reveal Christ to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so look at how chapter 12 begins. It might remind you of something that we've encountered before in this book already. But this isn't the first time that we've seen the tribe of Ephraim act like that, right? A little more violent. A little bit more violent, though. So yes, it was. It's the same thing, though. Ephraim just needs to be all up in the funk. They need to be in the business. They, It's all about them. They're all about the action, but they're not involved in the action, and so they're angry. They're undone by their pride. Does anyone remember when they pulled this before? Who was the judge at the time? It was Gideon. Yeah, it was Gideon. So back in chapter 8, actually, you want to look there. Let's look at it because it's, there is a contrast between that account and this one. This is 8, verse 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, and the same, same thing. The, the judge, at this point Gideon, had just brought victory to Israel. And so the men of Ephraim come to him after that and say to him, What is this you've done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said that. So Gideon talked them down. right? They come, they accuse him fiercely, but he talked them down. Their anger subsided. He was humble. And his comments made it so that Ephraim was subdued. Their pride, actually, though, was left intact in doing that, wasn't it? Because he was kind of like, well, who am I compared to you guys? You know, even your grapes are so much are so much greater. Essentially, even, they were affirmed in their pride. But it's not Gideon's job to correct their, the pride of a tribe of Israel, though. He could have called them to repentance for it. But instead, he chose a route that ended up being peaceful, you know, that pastor that tells us, like, in so much as it is up to you to live at peace with one another. Well, Jephthah, or not Jephthah, Gideon took that route, and the way he responded to them ended any sort of a problem that Ephraim was going to bring. Gideon made himself in no regard, and that was the end of it. But Ephraim is once again wanting to fragment Israel, and it's because of the pride of this people. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, writes, The Ephraimites always feel they must dom dominate dominate 
they must control, and they must be recognized. They must dominate, they must control, they must be recognized. That's what we see happening in chapter 8. That's what we see happening here again in chapter 12. And let's not forget, too, that when you give yourself over to sin, whatever that sin may be, in this case pride, when you don't repent of it, when you continue in it, there are lasting effects and, and consequences for such things. I'm always grateful, you know, actually, sometimes you hear of people share their testimony before. You know what a testimony is for a Christian? Usually, you know, testimony just simply means that you're testifying to something God's done. But in Christian circles, often a testimony means the story of how you became a Christian. And usually people get all excited about the people who become a Christian at an older age because they've done all these really evil sins. They've, they've lived this life that's totally contrary to the gospel and Christianity, and yet God saves them. And it is amazing that God would save people who are so wicked, especially. But I'm always more grateful and more thankful for of the stories I hear of young people being saved. Uh, when I hear of people who receive Christ as Lord and Savior at a young age, because for many people who experience the blessings of knowing God and being united to Christ earlier, they are then providentially kept from increasing in gross sins. Not that everyone is ever without sin or free from sin ever. Even people when they get saved in middle school or high school or even younger, they still sin. Of course they do. God seems to allow sin to remain in our lives, actually, so that it may humble us, that he may persevere us through it, causing us to remember the gospel and be thankful forever for his righteousness uh, through Christ throughout the remainder of our Christian life. You know, serves to humble us and, to, and forces us to have our, our focus set on Christ, the sin that remains in our life. But often when a person who is, who is saved at a young age, they are kept from committing great or tragic sins. Uh, this is why, in part, why parents usually pray for their children to receive Christ at a young age. It's a, it's a good prayer that, parent, that parents should be praying for their kids because as you go on sinning, sin increases. I mean, nobody just starts off murdering people, right? Nobody just starts doing that. You, you, it builds up to that. Uh, think of it, we saw that with the flood in Noah, right? Man increased on the land and so did sin. It becomes easier to sin as you live a life of sin and the way you sin becomes more severe when sin is left unchecked. It's helpful to think of this in light of what the Bible talks about with our human consciousness, actually. You all know what a consciousness is, I hope. We had to kind of define it in our small group. It's not something physical that you could touch. Right? If you think of what makes up a human nature, what makes up a person, People, there's some debate upon this, but I would say that people are made up of two parts. You're made up of the phys of physical and spiritual things. So physical, you have a body, you have a heart that beats, that muscle in your chest, a brain. These are part of your humanity. It's part of your human nature that is physical. And then you also have that part of you which is spiritual. Or So you have like a soul, um, a conscience, a will. Those things that you can't touch, you can't grab, you can't you can't draw a picture of it, but you know it exists. So, so if you would be technical, you call it like a man is a bipart being, um, bipart division of of man. So, anyways, um, the conscience is this inner guiding system that all people possess because God made us to have one. It's part of our nature as humans. It's been described by others as the storehouse of facts. Uh, the silent dictator, or the library of events and experiences. 
conscience is it's the heart of man, not the muscle of the heart, but it's that location in a person that has on it what Romans 2.15 says, the work of the law, that all people who exist have on their hearts, not their actual physical heart, but this conscience, this spiritual substance in you that is associated with your will and helps you to make decisions and choices, has on it from God the work of the law. If a person is not saved, that's what it's on there, the work of the law. So like even people who aren't saved know the difference usually between right and wrong. Uh, people who aren't saved love even, right? Not that these things are pleasing to God because nothing is pleasing to God apart from faith. But, they're a, but they know those things because of their conscience. They are moral agents because of it. Now, people who are saved actually have the law written on their heart. Not just the work of the law, but the law itself, right? Jeremiah 31 talks about people when they're born again, when God comes to them in Christ and the power of the gospel, that he writes the law on their heart so that Christians actually know specifically what God wants. Your desires are to desire the same things as what God wants. It's something that God gives to you. So people are these moral agents, either saved or unsaved. You're still this moral agent because you have a conscience. The conscience instructs us as to what is right and wrong. And scripture actually reveals that the conscience can change. It speaks of different kinds of consciences. And often it changes because of the ways in which we give ourselves over to sin and the ways in which our hearts become hardened. Again, not our physical heart, but their conscience, you know, that uses heart. You know how the Bible uses heart like that, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, it's not meaning you're, you're beating muscles, talking about your ability to, to choose what is right and good. So I'm just going to go through these kind of quickly for the sake of time uh, and not read the verses that are supporting them. But I got this from Pastor Jesse Castand, actually. But as we go through these different types of consciences, the Bible talks about six different types of consciences. Be thinking, is this my conscience? Be thinking, like, or is this a conscience that I want to have? Or is this a conscience I don't want to have? Now, these are all, everybody has a conscience, but they could be described differently, right? There's different descriptions that you can use as for a person's conscience. So the, the Bible, again, talks about six of them. Even be thinking about which are ones that you wouldn't want to have, okay? So the first one, you know, we call it the good conscience. This is the conscience that is informed by the truth. And this is like basically Acts 23.1, 1 Timothy 1.19. So this is a conscience that is informed by the truth. It knows God, responds to events and situations with a real sense of responsibility before God. He or she strives to be honest, aware that they must Meet God on his terms. This person is not seeking perfection, but you know they're seeking honesty. This is a, a conscience that is good, a conscience that is useful to you. A conscience that, you know, if you see something bad happening, you identify it as bad. <laughs> You're not confused about it being bad. Whereas today in our world, we have all sorts of different opinions about what's bad and good. Well, God's word is the guide for us as to what's actually good or bad. And the person with a good conscience would affirm what is good according to God's standards, not according to whatever the world is thinking. Closely related to it is what the Bible calls a pure conscience. So Hebrews 9, 14, 2 Timothy 1, 3. 
This is the conscience that has applied to it the atonement of Christ. It has felt the power of forgiveness and it knows the virtue of continually excuse me, washing in the blood of Christ, of remembering the gospel, in other words, so as to maintain a true heart in approaching the living God by faith in all that Christ is for them all the time. So really, I, I mean, are you aware of your need for God and your dependence upon him for salvation? Are you, are you aware of the, the reality that you are a sinner and that Christ lived a holy life and went to the cross there to die for sin that he didn't commit any sin, to die for the sin that, uh, that you had committed? That, that's the understanding that a pure conscience has. This is the one who knows what God requires and will not neglect the sanctifying grace from God for any other means of acceptance. And the person with a clear conscience isn't trying to get right with God by doing good works. They're, they know that they're right with God based upon the merits of Christ only, what Jesus has done, not what they do. And it's easy to get you know confused as a Christian about that even. But we always need to remember, again, that's why we want to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Remember that we are, we are sinners and that it's not our good works that enable us to come before God's presence, but it's Christ and his righteousness. A, a pure conscience gets that. It meditates that. It understands that. He understands the value of God's sacrifice. The person with a pure conscience fears the Lord and worships him. Uh, they find joy in his love and his suffering to bring them before God. Uh, this is a this is the conscience of a true worshiper whose only boast is Christ. You know they have a desire to be with the church. They want to be you know worshiping God with God's people. Then also Scripture speaks of a weak conscience, First Corinthians eight seven through twelve. So we'll be dealing with this really in a couple Sundays actually. Uh, this is the person who is not experienced in the Word of God, not experienced in the ways of God. And what is not experienced in knowing what is good and acceptable in the will of God, they often operate out of fear, out of ignorance, out of superstition, and out of feeling, out of affections. Uh, the storehouse of facts, the conscience for them, doesn't place things in its proper category because there's no real biblical reference point for them to put things in those categories. There's not enough to formulate the necessary categories of sound biblical values or conviction. Uh, they lack the maturity which only comes with time and prayer and sensitive and a sensitive search for the truth. Why do you think we're always instructing you guys to you know, be reading on your own time, be praying on your own time, so that you so that your conscience might not be weak, so that it may be guided by God's word. Uh, meanwhile, these people with a weak conscience, they can be tossed to and fro by manipulators. Why do you think there's so many people that get deceived by false teachers? By these people that have, you know, nice suits, nice smiles. They have big churches where they could fit, you know, tens of thousands of people in there. It's because the people that they're ministering to have weak consciences. They don't actually know what God expects and what God wants. And so they're able to tell them whatever, you know, they want to tell them and it gets believed. So the vast majority of non-diligent Christians, Pastor Jesse uh, goes on to say that such people seldom enter into a true grace experience with God. So a weak conscience is not a good conscience to have, obviously. This, the next one described, is the evil conscience. And so Hebrews 10.22 or John 8.9. This is the conscience that knows it is guilty before God. 
the law has effectively indicted him, and yet he's found a remedy, or he's yet to find a remedy. The evil conscience has not found the power of the gospel and forgiveness and grace through Christ, yet it is therefore tormented with guilt, which will lead him to destroy himself in deeds of wickedness, as is the case for the person who lives for pleasure and not for God. So a conscience that is evil, a conscience that you know, might understand, well, I believe there's God, but God doesn't love me and I don't want to serve him. I'd rather, you know, worship the devil. You know, you have like those churches of Satan, like they're so random, right? Like why would anybody go to a church, the church of Satan, but it's this big legitimate organization. Well, it's because their conscience are evil. They recognize nothing, right? They recognize that the God who is God exists. They just reject him and the evil conscience. Then there's the defiled conscience, Titus 1.5, Romans 1.2, um, or 1.24 to 32. If you're familiar with Romans 1, and it talks about the wickedness of man, how God gives mankind over into all this sorts of wickedness because they desire it. Well, it's because they have what's called a defiled conscience. Now, this is the conscience that lives comfortably with perversion, with self-pleasure, with carnal gratification. It is an earthly mindset which accepts all kinds of wickedness and feels no need to embrace a right standing with God. It will justify every evil deed and doctrine as long as it serves the individual who's holding to it. If it feels good, then it's, then it's enough. Why are right? so many of these negative? That's, that's a good observation. More of these are negative, right? We think of the problem of sin and the vastness of it. We're really not surprised, right? Because there's only one. There's only one right way to be right with God, right? It's through Christ. But the the ways in which we can sin are many. The ways in which we can go astray are many. That's a good point, right? Yeah. The the road. There's two roads. Jesus talks about the road of righteousness. The path of Christ is narrow. The gate is narrow. Few find it. The the road to evil to eternal damnation is, is wide and many are on it so it's the bible's talking about all these different ways that people indulge their sin rather than have their having their desires set upon the goodness of god through christ and then lastly the worst conscience the seared conscience a conscience that is seared you know it's something that when you like sear some meat you cook it really on high heat on one side and so it like it captures the so it makes it so the flavor can't leave it. Or if you sear, like, if you, it's like you get burned. You know, it's just, it's burned so it loses feeling. This is um, the last kind of conscience that scripture describes. And it's the conscience at its hardest point. It's essentially useless in making true moral assessments to the mind. It's people who are beyond feeling. They're, they're past feeling. People who can function without guilt, without moral alarm or true justice. It is the epitome of selfishness. It is a person who calls evil good and what is good evil. If you think of like, how can there be like, you know, mass murderers? Like, don't they feel bad about killing all these people? They have a conscience, just like everybody else. They're made in God's image. But they have indulged sin so much in their lives that their conscience is seared. And so they're beyond feeling. They don't have remorse. Unless God, you know, comes and and changes that, and that's the good thing about the gospel as well too. Um, even if even if all most of these categories of conscience are bad, none of them are beyond God's grace from God's point of view. 
God can change anyone at, at any of these points. And even though these are nice little tidy categories, experience would actually say that most people aren't just caught up in one of them. Like I can't say, oh, um, Malcolm, he's a, he's a seared conscience. They could be partly that in one area and then partly in another and maybe two others, for example, as well, too. I mean, for so maybe things like this. You can have maybe your conscience could be seared when it comes to the topic of abortion. Right. You could say, oh, no, abortion is fine. I think a woman should be able to do that. It's a woman's choice. It's her rights. You're, you're, you're totally blind to the reality that that's a baby that is being killed. And so in that regard, your conscience is seared. But, you know, you would never steal a car or something like that. You would think that's wrong. It seems silly, right? Like, oh, well, why don't you just steal a car if you don't, you don't care about murdering somebody in the, in the womb? But the reality is that you can have parts of your conscience that are maybe at different levels at different times. The point, though, is that exposure to sin, living in sin, embracing sin, not repenting of sin, will damage your conscience so that eventually you do more wicked with less guilt because your conscience is damaged. So look back at, at Judges chapter 12. It's been some years since the people of Ephraim have interacted with Gideon. And we know that since those years, Israel as a whole have drifted away from God. They're doing more evil, increasing in evil. God's mercy has still been available to them. And notice, though, how Ephraim's pride displays itself now. They had pride before. It still exists now. But it's worse. They're so mad that not only are they asking, why did you not let us share in your victory, essentially? But now they also threaten his life. The end of verse 1, we will burn your house over you with fire. It's just even a weird way of saying that. We will burn your house over you with fire. So they're going to trap him in his house and burn his house with him inside of it, burn him alive. And even before that, the men of Ephraim are called to arms. they've, They've already come out to battle. They're not coming to discuss like they did with Gideon. They're coming out already just ready to go full force at Jephthah. So they're, in, they're not interested in talking to Jephthah. They're ready to fight. And so Jephthah pleads his case in verse 2 and 3. He says he's done nothing wrong, but Jephthah isn't interested in being humble like Gideon was. And now Ephraim's going to be humbled. Uh, the proud is going to fall. Certainly God has a hand in humbling Ephraim. At this point, he's, he's providentially working these things to that counsel of his will. But this humbling is going to come at the expense of more wickedness from Jephthah. You see, the judge's job, or maybe say one of the results of his job in delivering the the nation of Israel was to bring unity and harmony to the people, to bring peace. But we don't see that here. He's just, you know, he's, he's defeated the Ammonites. And so now there should come this time of rest, this time of peace. But instead we see the opposite. We see instead of unity, there's a deadly division. And so in verse 4, we read that Jephthah and the the men of Gilead go to war with with Ephraim. This isn't Israel versus the pagan nations. This is Israel versus Israel. There's no unity here. Even worse, Jephthah and his men prey upon a cultural difference rather than seeing to it that the peace would be restored to the land. Uh, they, They soak the land with the blood of the Ephraimites instead. Look what they do. They end up capturing the fords of the Jordan which we read here in um in verse 5. And what that means is that the Ephraimites can't retreat now. 
Like even though they're even though they're being beat, because now that Jephthah and Megillus have captured, they they took these posts on the banks of the Jordan as um, operating bases for them. The Ephraimites can't get back to the land where they live. So they're not, um, Jephthah isn't even showing grace and mercy to the people of the Lord, who were in the wrong the first place, in the first place, of course, but now he's giving them no escape even. And so when the fugitives from Ephraim tried to go back home, they had to say a certain word. It's the word shibboleth. It's a weird word, right? But it means an ear, it means an ear of corn. That's all it means. It just means like an ear of corn. And the people of Ephraim say it different than the people of Gilead. They say Sibboleth. They drop the H. And the cultural dialect is different. It's common today. Even we have that same sort of thing. That same difference happens here in the United States. Uh, we have some words in English here in California that people in different states say differently. And maybe you've heard of like potato or potato, for example. Like they're spelled the same way, but people say it differently. I've heard that on the West Coast, and uh, maybe this will be different for some of you guys. I don't know. But car- caramel, like that gooey candy, caramel. caramel on the East Coast. So most people on the East Coast call it caramel. On the, In the West and on the Midwest, it's caramel. So, al- yeah, all sorts of types of stuff like that. Almonds, almonds. What are almonds? Almonds. <laughs> They're almonds. People say it weird. So Jephthah and his men use this cultural difference to end up killing a total of 42,000 Ephraimites at the end of Saul. No unity, just more death. And it's interesting how it ends as well. Telling is maybe a better word than interesting because it's a sad note. Uh, we read verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. It's what's not mentioned that's important. Now flip back to chapter 8, verse 28. So back to Gideon's account. 8.28. This is when Gideon had victory over the Midianites. It says, So Midian was subsumed before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. If you have a pen or a pencil and you underline stuff in your Bible, you could underline that part that says, And the land had rest 40 years. Because that's the last time that we're going to read that in the book of Judges. That's the last time that the land had rest at the end of the deliverance cycle. That's the last time that we read that. From there on out, the cycle continues, but the concept of the land having no rest uh, no longer appears. And certainly think of what happened with Abimelech after Gideon. That was a train wreck. That was a big mess. There was no rest. Uh, we don't read of rest with those two judges that we didn't get much info on. And here at the end of Jephthah's life, there's turmoil and war. There's bloodshed. The cycle that I mentioned in our introduction to this series, the sermon series, which is like 33 sermons ago, the, the cycle isn't quite accurate. If you remember, we talked about there being this general cycle in Judges where you have um, was it a re- rebellion, repentance, rescue, and then rest. It's not quite accurate. Generally speaking, it's true, but it's not quite specifically accurate. I mean, there is rebellion, and God's going to raise a judge, and then there's deliverance, and then there's the time after the deliverance before the next act of rebellion that Israel commits starts up. But the time after that deliverance is not always noted as a time of rest. 
the, only, the last time it's noted as a time of rest is with Gideon. Ralph Davis in his commentary says this. He says, contrary to some, judges do not follow a recurring cycle of rebellion, repent, repentance, rescue, and rest. That's too simplistic. Uh, there's, when you really consider the text, he continues on, he says, but it charts the progressive disintegration of a people who will not serve the God who saves them. That's what we've been seeing. It's been getting worse in Judges, hasn't it? And this reminds us, though, friends, that there is a judge who was raised up by God, though, that does provide us rest, who does bring unity. Yahweh's deliverance of his people in this account has been overshadowed by idolatrous worship. Remember, on the behalf of Jephthah offering a person for a sacrifice, it's been overshadowed by stubborn pride, with Ephraim. And so what we should be thinking is that if we desire salvation from our problems, we need to seek it from one that's greater than Jephthah. And one that's greater than any of the judges that are named in this book. And one that's greater than anything that we might think deliver us from our problems here today, whether it's our parents, whether it's our, our bosses, our jobs, whatever it is that you might think is going to be savior to you. We need one greater. Jesus worshiped God properly all the time. Never once did he syncretize with the world and culture around him to worship his father. Remember, he went to the temple and he cleansed it because there were people in there worshiping Yahweh falsely. And he overthrew the money tables and he chased out those who were buying and selling. Um, he showed he didn't divide God's people. He showed mercy on sinners and united us to himself. Ephesians 2.18-22 says, for through him we both, and we means both Jew and Gentile. If you divide all the people up in the world into two categories, in that time period, it would be common to divide people into the category of Jew and Gentile. But Paul writes, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, there's unity. He provides unity for us built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the, the judges in the book of Judges can't bring that kind of unity. They never can. Nothing else in our life will bring that kind of unity as well. Only Christ can bring that kind of unity. That's the sort of deliverance that Christ brings. We see these judges and how God uses them. He certainly does use them. But at the end of the day, they're like us. They're flawed. They need salvation themselves. And so we look to Christ. He's all we need, and he should be our only boast. So let's pray. Father in heaven, it's hard seeing the tragedy that we do in this book of Judges, but we know, Lord, that our lives aren't truly all that much different. There is tragedy among us today. There is gross sin. There is much disunity. There is massive issues with pride. And Lord, we know that the only hope that we have against all of these things is your gospel. We pray that you would help us to have a great confidence in your gospel to do the work that only it can do. We pray that you would save uh, all of us, that you save our friends, our families, that you would help us to care about the things that you care about, Lord. Don't help us, for Christ's glory's sake, to not have a, a conscience that is hardened because of sin. Uh, help us to have a pure conscience, pure conscience 
and good conscience so that we might honor you and glorify you for you are worthy of all worship and all praise. To you be glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.